This episode is presented by Wild Dunes Resort, a resort unlike any other. Wild Dunes offers something for everyone. Award-winning golf, tennis, pickleball, and sparkling pools, delicious on-site dining, and memorable outdoor adventures. Located just outside Charleston in beautiful Isle of Palms, South Carolina, Wild Dunes offers 36 holes of signature golf designed by Tom Fazio. The Lynx course was Fazio's first solo design and is still among his favorites today. From the rustling palms lining the rolling fairways to a finishing hole overlooking the glistening Atlantic, the Lynx course is South Carolina golf at its finest. The Harbor Course, another of Fazio's gems known for its challenging design, beautiful views, and most of all, water. From lagoons and salt marshes to the intracoastal waterway, this course will test all aspects of your game. Whether it's an afternoon golf outing or a week-long excursion, you will enjoy every minute of your golf vacation at Wild Dunes Resort. Learn more about Wild Dunes at wilddunes.com. Welcome back to another episode of the Lynx Golf Podcast. Al Lunsford, Joe Passoff, and today joined again by George Pepper, who was kind enough to give us some of his time between uh, the pages of the book that he's writing. Uh, appreciate you taking the time with us. Sure. Uh, how is, uh, can you can you give us, before we go into your column. And of course, we're going to preview the fall issue, fall 2023 issue of links in this episode. But um, I want to talk about your book first. Um, what number well, book is this for you? And, and what's the context? This is number 24, believe it or not. Uh, probably 16 that I've actually written by myself, but I've uh, co-written probably four or five and edited another four or five, something like that. Anyway, the action it's related to the column because the column is on the fact that I haven't played golf since March. And that's the longest layoff since I was, what, 14 years old. And uh, it, the reason is the book. Um, it's a contract uh, my co-author and I got uh, back in February, March. And the book isn't due out in October, but the manuscript is due to the publisher on October 1st. Mm -hmm. uh, it's got to be about between 90 and 100,000 words. And, and uh, despite being someone who's made his living writing, uh, I'm a very slow writer. So I made the determination early on that I would have to be on a very strict schedule this summer, which meant zero golf. So I was expecting to have withdrawal symptoms, but I haven't. And it's been all good. But uh, to get to the book, it's it's called Rainmaker. And it's the story of a guy I knew uh, when I was uh, editor of Golf Magazine named Hughes Norton. Uh, that name may be recognizable to some of the listeners. Uh, he was the head of the golf division of Mark McCormick's IMG, International Management Group. And um, the subtitle of the book is uh, Super Agent Hughes Norton and the Money Grab Explosion of Golf from Tiger to Live and Beyond. So uh, what happened to uh, Hughes in a nutshell was he was the uh, the agent for half a dozen uh, world number one ranked players. Uh, the last two of whom were Greg Norman and Tiger Woods, both of whom fired Hughes. First Norman uh, around 1993, and he might've been fired at the same time by IMG, had it not been for the case that for about, about four years previous to that, he had been cultivating a relationship with Tiger Woods. Uh, and he, he sort of 
quote unquote discovered Tiger when Tiger was about 12 or 13 years old, met him for the first time when he was 13 and began sort of uh, courting the Woods family. And then he became Tiger's agent. Uh, before Tiger ever hit a ball competitively, Hughes had earned him over $60 million that uh, was not dependent on anything Tiger did thereafter. He could have been hit by a bus the next day and he would have gotten $60 million. Um, and in the first two years, I think he brought him something like Tiger made maybe $3 million playing golf in 1997 and 98, uh, 96, 97. And um, I think he made $15 million off course income through Hughes. Anyway, uh, long story short, uh, two little over two years after Hughes was his agent, Hughes was no longer his agent. Uh, Tiger totally floored him when he said, uh, I want to make a change. And uh, suddenly he was gone. And about a couple of months after that, Mark McCormick fired him. He got a very, very uh, lucrative uh, golden parachute. And uh, with it came a non-compete uh, order and a gag order uh, for 10 years. And after that, Hughes chose not to say anything. And now he's changed his mind. Uh, and it's we're really in the context of this whole explosion of big money in golf that if you think about it could be traced back to kind of the Hughes Norton uh, Mark McCormick uh, Dean Beeman era when corporate America discovered golf and the money started pouring in and now it's become semi-obscene um, and a publisher has seen fit to kind of roll this story all into one the rise and fall of Hughes Norton the rise and disappearance of IMG and the monetization and, uh, as I said, money grab era of professional golf. So I'm about three quarters of the way done writing uh, a second of two chapters on Tiger right now. Hughes is about to get fired, but not quite. <laughs> and once he's fired and say goodbye, uh, the book will be done and we'll hand it in and see where it goes. Well, that's two of the sports all-time most fascinating and polarizing players and Greg Norman and Tiger Woods. So. Yeah, and what's interesting and what uh, kind of uh, dovetails with today's era is, interestingly, these two two guys for whom Hughes was the chief, was the agent, uh, are now on diametrically opposed sides of the whole live thing. Norman is the, at least for the moment, the commissioner of live and Tiger now on the policy board uh, and until they had uh, cooked up this uh, framework agreement was very much on the opposite side and still may be. So it's uh, it's going to be an interesting shakeout. Well, as you said, 90,000 words and a, and a due date in October for you to turn that in doesn't leave a lot of time for much else. And, and working on your golf is probably yeah. not high on the list of things you have. No, I, haven't, I really haven't struck a ball. Well, there was one three days in June. I played in a member guest with my son, and that was it. And uh, other than that, I haven't hit as much as a three-foot putt. So, and I thought it would be awful. I thought I was going to go through all sorts of uh, withdrawal pains where, you know, I have these fits of carpet putting and things like that. But I, I really haven't missed it. Um, and as I look back at a lot of what I am missing 
is very missable. I mean, I when I left got left off golf, a lot of golf I was playing was pretty bad. And now I'm playing no bad golf at all. I, I haven't missed a shot since March. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not letting my playing partners down. I'm not losing sleep over uh, the swing change I'm trying to make or the next three footer I'm going to have to uh, attempt. And, you know, I'm not having to go through this charade of uh, being a good loser after I lose. This is all very stressful for me. So I, I'm not going through that anymore. And um, I, I, I don't have any back aches. I uh, sleep better. I'm saving all sorts of money and green fees and lost balls and stuff like that. So I think I'm generally a happier person uh, than I was when I was an obsessed golfer. Um, so and, and it's sort of, I, I hope, helped me discover that you don't need a lot of this uh, self-flagellation and frustration that all of us go through. And I'm hoping that uh, in a month or so when I do uh, make a return to the game, it'll be on... <clears throat> sort of a better level uh, and I'll try to keep things uh, in perspective, not put as much uh, pressure on myself. So that's kind of the uh, sort of discovery number one I've made and any other uh, during my uh, sabbatical is, and through the book is kind of taking a look at, at how the game of professional golf has changed. You know, Bobby Jones had that famous quote, there's golf and professional golf and the two aren't anywhere near alike. And uh, I think that's probably true now uh, more than ever uh, with the way it has grown to become such big business. Uh, I mean, talk about bifurcation and this has nothing to do with equipment. It's just the two games are not at all alike. And uh, I've often said, I think we have the better, we amateurs have the better side of that deal. I've often said, I, I subscribe to the notion that um, if all of the, uh, the PGA Tour, let's say they were assembled out in uh, Scottsdale, somewhere in the desert for a tournament, and everybody who was anybody was there for this event, including all of the players, all of the press, all the officials, everyone who was part of this uh, great juggernaut of uh, professional golf were there. And if during that week they had the misfortune for a huge meteor to descend on this spot in the desert and completely obliterate everything within five miles pga tour is gone everything with it is gone i think the next morning uh, golfers around the world would get up uh, observe a moment of silence and then go right on playing professional golf needs us amateurs we really don't need it they are the game's window dressing uh, kind of billboards they attract us to the game but they don't they don't keep us in the game so yeah as i say i'm hopeful i'm going to go back to golf i'm probably not going to play better than i did before but i'm pretty sure i'm going to enjoy it more and that's something that all these billions of dollars in professional golf can't buy very good <laughs> joe uh <laughs> joe gives you a little standing ovation uh the most amount of time you've spent not playing golf, Joe, uh, in recent memory, at least? Well, uh, Al, you know, while most folks uh, picked up their uh, game during the pandemic because there wasn't much else you could do, I went the other direction uh, and didn't play at all. 
and didn't touch the club for the longest time through the pandemic, even as Arizona was one of the states where you you could play and um, and and made the different mechanisms so that uh, solo riding and bunkers and with the rakes and the flag sticks with uh, what uh, what they did. And I I just chose not to play. It was a family situation where we had a an older, vulnerable person uh, living with us and just didn't want to take the chance. So I really was very interested in what George had to say in his column. Can't wait, you know, for everybody to see it and read it because, you know, in terms of how much we miss the game and for whatever reasons we miss it, um, I think it does come back to what, what appeals to you. What is it after, you know, George and I are a couple of old timers who have been able to play just about everywhere we ever wanted um, and a bunch of it. So when we have this hiatus from actually playing the game, um, what do we think about? I don't miss it. Or are there things that you actually do miss that are a little harder to identify? I mean, I was smiling when George went through his litany of uh, not letting down partners and not disappointing yourself with your score, no bad backs, you know, and, and that kind of thing. But but there are other aspects, um, including the bonding aspect of playing golf with a three buddies or a best friend or a family member or that first and perhaps only really cold beer after a round of golf on a warm day. Um, and, and, you know, in and of itself, that's not hitting golf shots. But it's the golf experience and the ritual of playing golf and some of the things that I thought about when I wasn't playing at all. So, you know, these days I'm playing nowhere near as much. Um, I'm, I've got a pretty, pretty full plate of work myself. But it's interesting then to reflect, as George has done so, on what the game means to you, what you miss about it, if anything, uh, what you look forward to when you get back. and. Last but not least, it's not about professional golf. It's a great diversion, but so is football, if you like to watch that all fall. Or college basketball, no matter what team, your con uh, the conference that your team is now in. Um, it's just a diversion. Uh, whereas playing the game, you know, is something that affects us mentally, physically, socially, and so forth. So... Um, George, great perspective. I understand uh, why you're taking some time off right now, but it's also really, really good for reflection on just what it is that appeals and has appealed for so long to all of us about teeing it up. I agree. Yeah, I look forward to just now the exercise, the being out in the fresh air, the camaraderie, and as you say, the one cold beer on a hot day. Yeah. All part of the gestalt of golf. <laughs> and with that meteor that uh, was headed to the desert, um, I have to check our insurance to see if we're covered for that. Yeah, I wasn't aiming at you, okay. Joe. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do think we can all agree it's kind of become insufferable, the amount of things that you have to follow in regard to the legalities of the, the professional tours and things of that nature. So 
Um, one, one thing that you're most looking forward to coming back, I think George, for me, it's when I haven't played in a while, it's about, you know, finding it again. You don't really have any expectations of where your game is when you go back after a long time, but then the thrill of kind of figuring it out as you go and, and refining it. Like after I took two months off and I went out with my son, we did a one practice round or nine holes, I guess it was before playing in this three day, that was two day tournament. And, and uh, I stood up the first tee and I topped three in a row. I mean, I'm still like a, I don't know what the heck, 11 handicap or something. 11 handicappers shouldn't top three in a row. And I was really worried that it had been lost forever. <laughs> uh, but in the course of the next half hour, 45 minutes, I, I learned at least how to hit the ball relatively squarely. And, and that was both relief and a joy. And, uh, you know, I think I'm looking for smaller things. As I said in the column, maybe just the uh, the singular joy of wa watching a well-struck iron shot soar out there more or less toward the pin. That's, uh, I'm looking forward to that. And uh, the, 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 the little pleasures, the small pleasures of a game of golf. And if it goes beyond that and I start to play better, I'll probably more greedy and become obsessed again. But that is not the goal. <laughs> well, you have to let us know how that goes. And uh, we're looking forward to reading Rainmaker when that comes out. Uh, so we'll, we'll be on the, the lookout for that as well. Uh, speaking of uh, meteors and life and periling events, uh, things that could be of danger to you, whether you're on a golf course or not. But but Joe, in particular, your Paragon column for this issue uh, covers golf courses that, um, in, in your words, are hair razors, high wire acts, and uh, ultimately give you a thrill more than just the idea of playing around a golf. Well, Al, uh... As I mentioned at the start of the column that folks will read, well, it's a, a department, I guess we call it. Um, in um, it, it, you know, sometimes all we want from a golf experience is a tranquil walk in the park, but other times we want something that's a little more pulse quickening. Uh, I mean, maybe even in a dramatic, in-your-face way. And you know, the idea for this one came to me from um, a long-ago description from uh, Tom Doak, who uh, at, at, for a time, certainly he was every bit as good a writer as he was an architect. And uh, he described a course in Wales called Neffen and District. Um, one of the smaller courses, not, not a top 100 by any means, but I did get a chance to play it uh, <laughs> 27 years ago. And uh, what he wrote was, um, this is one of, without question, this is in one of his early confidential guides. He said, this is without question, one of the most memorable courses I've seen, talking about Neffen and District in Wales. He said, all golf courses are supposed to challenge the player to grapple with the terrain and the elements, but at very few other courses does the challenge become so severe as to smack of survivalism. Great description. Yeah. And whether there's a little hyperbole or not, I mean, it, that's what we're talking about here is typically in a round of golf, you don't expect, um, well, uh, to confront your own mortality. 
But there are golf courses and golf experiences from time to time where the element of danger, uh, Al, as you put it, hair raising, uh, there are some other uh, adjectives, whether it's excitement, terror, astonishment, you know, whatever it would be. And that was what I thought might be fun to explore in not only identifying what course best fit that bill, but even some runners up around the world where, uh, yeah, you felt it. It was definitely a different dimension to your golf game um, in something that uh, would excite you, but uh, potentially destroy you. So that was uh, that was the background behind this one. And the golf course that I identified um, as golf's ultimate high wire act was down in the Mexican desert of Los Cabos called Quivira. And uh, Quivira is a golf course uh, by pure coincidence that I played for the first time with George Pepper. Um, yeah, here. by the way, I, I'm relieved that uh, playing with me was not part of your criteria for the round <laughs> being terrifying and life-threatening. <laughs> it was, there was only so many words I was allotted, George. So, um, you know, I'll have to look at an earlier draft that factored in. But, um, you know, this is a golf course, uh, Kivira in Los Cabos. It's on the Pacific side. Um, so it's a little uh, breezier than, say, the Cabo courses that are on the Sea of Cortez. Uh, the views are absolutely astonishing of looking out over the Pacific and climbing up into the hills in the desert. Enormous, dramatic elevation changes and some thrilling golf holes to where uh, at least one major publication, uh, Golf Digest, has Kivira ranked in the world's top 100 courses. So um, we're talking about a, a very good golf course, you know, by most estimations. But we're also talking about a golf course that from time to time serves up a dose of danger, uh, <laughs> frankly, um, if you uh, get a little carried away. And one example that um, that I talked about um, before it was ever grassed and even staked, I went to see the site and we were on uh, all terrain vehicles and uh, was with the future director of golf there. And I am I'm, I'm the kind of I'm the kind of guy, uh, Al George, who goes through life with a seatbelt on. I, I mean, I, I'm a conservative sort of fellow in that regard. And I mean, I was scared witless on this ATV slipping and sliding down enormous sand dunes and just wondering uh, how they were going to build a golf course on this site, make it playable. So eventually Jack Nicholas did. And, um, you know, credit Jack, he's taken on some dramatic sights in his life. And this one, um, as I mentioned in the story, there are a couple of examples where if you make a wrong turn on the cart path, uh, you could very easily plunge uh, into, uh, well, uh, an unrecoverable <laughs> fly, uh, a bad situation. Um, but, I mean, the cart paths are beautifully constructed. They're wide. There are, you know, proper warnings uh, to, you know, maintain an appropriate speed. 
um, you know, for the conditions. And it gets you where you want to go. Not a very walkable golf course, say the least, but one that you are thrilled, you know, pretty much from start to finish. And, you know, there are a couple holes in particular. Uh, what had been the old um, fifth hole, a very short par four, the course has been uh, renumbered since then when they added a new hole and, and subtracted one. So that short par four, about 320 yards or so, is now the sixth hole. But just to walk to the back tee, you walk down this slender stone path uh, to this tiny oasis of turf and you're looking down at the ocean and you stand on this uh, little island of turf and you think I, I better not you know follow through with too much gusto because if you stumble you're tumbling down a cliff and wind up at the beach and you know hey you're food for the whales that are migrating in season so it's little things like that where you almost become disoriented from time to time because the view is so spectacular, so much unlike anything you've seen elsewhere in golf. And there are a couple of par threes that fit that description as well. So there are some other examples and we can we can talk about them, but Kivira won my vote to fit this category. And, uh, you know, it, again, it's bucket list. You got to play it. Yeah. There are some golf holes that will not appeal to the purists, but for your vacation golf or as a member, um, you will never be bored. I agree. I, and I think Golf Digest is probably right in the ranking it among the top 100 because it is a, a, an exhilarating, at the very least, uh, experience. One of the things I do remember, that's the only time I played it was that round with you, is they had a very elaborate uh, halfway houses serving Bloody Marys and uh, margaritas and whatnot. And uh, it occurred to me at the moment that was a pretty good idea because you at any moment might have hit a few off the cliff and been sort of unhappy and needed sort of a pick me up. But on the other hand, uh, given the difficulty of driving those uh, carts along the mountain ledges, uh, I, I wouldn't recommend too many uh, margaritas before you get back in the cart. But, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's really a cool play. But uh, same, same. Played, have you ever yep. played Pinnacle Peak in uh, South Africa? Pinnacle I have not. Point? I think it's Pinnacle yeah, Point. Pinnacle Point. That and is I, similar. I remember seeing the photos and talking to uh, course ranking panelists who had traveled there uh, because at first blush, I thought this is, you know, right. If it's a good design, it's got to be the equal of Pebble Beach or something like that. Hmm. And in the end, the feedback that I got was it's as spectacular as just about anything you might find. Um, and Old Head in Ireland usually gets my vote as the most spectacular. But by the same token, um, it, the design wasn't quite as strong as the setting, and therefore it kind of was maybe a you know tenth tenth place in South Africa as opposed to top fifty in the world. Yeah, yeah, it's what uh, Tom Doak, uh, non politically correctly, used to call a dumb blonde or a, you know, a beautiful <laughs> house, no one's home. Uh, it's spectacular, <laughs> but uh, maybe it doesn't have the the strategic shot values and chops that a, uh, a lot of golf courses do. Well, speaking of Tom Doak, uh, one of my other choices for kind of honorable mention in this category was a Tom Doak design in New Zealand, Cape Kidnappers. And, uh, you know, I have been fortunate to play that one. Can I drop the name? I played it with Adam Scott. 
thank you, folks. Um, <laughs> great experience and, um, and an excellent design, in some ways even underrated for its, its design, because what most folks who have never been there know and remember about Cape Kidnappers are the aerial photographs that were done of these fingers of land, clifftop land jutting out. Uh, that looks very imperiling. Um, and as Tom Doak remarked in talking about the 650-yard par 5 15th, uh, he said that the area to the left is marked out of bounds, quote, to stop someone from trying to play a shot and falling to their death, end quote. So again, you know, those of us who have done that and gone over to the edge of the green or the fairway, I mean, it's not for the weak stomach. Um, it's a it's a pretty uh, startling uh, look down the cliffside. Um, and then without the elevations, there were two other courses I mentioned just for thrill seekers and uh, and the prospect of peril. Uh, one was on the Big Island of Hawaii Volcano Golf Course, which is a modest, fun golf course in its own right. Sixty five hundred yards, um, you know, not going to beat you up. But it could do much worse to you if you play during an active volcano, which is just two miles down the road. So with the spewing lava and ash and so forth, and we have great photos from the Associated Press of golfers actually playing through an exploding volcano. And uh, that might be fun to do one time. I'm not going to cross that <laughs> off. Uh, reason to get back to the golf course, George. And then, uh, of course, the last one I chose was Sun City South Africa Resort, the Lost City Golf Course, which uh, part part of the really fun uh, resort destination in Sun City that Gary Player designed. And um, I don't hear a lot about the other 17 holes, but in the day, I certainly heard about the par 3 13th, which played across a crocodile pit. Yes, sometimes there were 30 of these beasts, sometimes there were 40, but it was populated with six foot long crocodiles. And uh, as, uh, as I mentioned in the story, at Hazard's Edge is the most unnecessary sign in golf, which states in part, quote, warning, entry to the crocodile enclosure is strictly prohibited. Do not <laughs> attempt to retrieve golf balls from the cockpit. So there you go. A few examples of um, non-traditional golf, not quite your average walk in the park, something a lot stronger. Yeah, I, I've played that one in Sun City and that hole. The other 17 are not memorable, but that one is. <laughs> well, glad to see you with uh, your limbs intact, George. <laughs> I like how you, you know, everyone will probably think the cliffside courses that some of the few that we talked about, Pinnacle Point and um, Gavira, you know, everyone remembers the shot that Jordan Spieth tried to hit at Pebble Beach on the eighth hole right above the cliff where uh, mm. he could have slipped and, and fallen to his death on live television. Uh, I remember, we, yeah. Al, which almost happened to him at the Ryder Cup at Whistling Straits. Yeah, when he when hit that he... shot straight in the air. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then had to, in his follow through, catch his balance by practically sprinting downhill towards right. Lake Michigan. Yeah. Yeah. Be a good video. Yeah. Um, golf's biggest daredevil plays golf's most life imperiling course. That <laughs> um, but I like how you you mentioned some other, you know, non traditional 
or not, I guess not Cliff's side options in your uh, honorable mentions too. And if you played a golf course in South Carolina and gotten close to a, a lake's edge, you've had that feeling in your mind that you could be being watched by a dinosaur crocodile uh, or alligator <laughs> coming out of the, the swamp and marsh to come and snag you. So um, that was a fun, fun exercise, a lot different from the last Paragon you did about walks in the park too, like you <laughs> mentioned, <laughs> kind of the opposite of that. We like to shake it up. Yeah. <laughs> This episode is presented by Wild Dunes Resort, a resort unlike any other. Wild Dunes offers something for everyone. Award-winning golf, tennis, pickleball, and sparkling pools, delicious on-site dining, and memorable outdoor adventures. Located just outside Charleston in beautiful Isle of Palms, South Carolina, Wild Dunes offers 36 holes of signature golf designed by Tom Fazio. The Lynx course was Fazio's first solo design and is still among his favorites today. From the rustling palms lining the rolling fairways to a finishing hole overlooking the glistening Atlantic, the Lynx course is South Carolina golf at its finest. The Harbor course, another of Fazio's gems known for its challenging design, beautiful views, and most of all, water. From lagoons and salt marshes to the intracoastal waterway, this course will test all aspects of your game. Whether it's an afternoon golf outing or a week-long excursion, you will enjoy every minute of your golf vacation at Wild Dunes Resort, Learn more about Wild Dunes at wilddunes.com. Furthermore, in this issue, we're, we're talking um, Blue Ridge Mountains golf. Uh, we're covering some open competitions in Scotland. Uh, and we're also talking golf in Italy as the Ryder Cup is upcoming. Um, and that lends to Jeff Shackelford's column where he talks about, and, and George, maybe you can speak more on this too, um, the difference in the courses that have been played in the States and the courses that have been played across the pond recently in the competition. And Yeah, he, he kind of uh, asked me for an idea, if I had any ideas for this column, and I said, well, it's kind of the Ryder Cup season, if you got something on that. And of course, he's an architect as well as a writer, so figured write something about Ryder Cup courses. And Kind of the obvious tack was the differences between uh, certainly the most recent uh, Ryder Cup courses, really going back almost 30 years or more, um, where the European side needs to make deals uh, to kind of finance their tour. And uh, the places you make deals with are not the Walton Heaths of the world. It's with the big resorts uh, <clears throat> and also places that can accommodate the all the whole the whole infrastructure of a, what has become a major event. And so that kind of what has happened ever since the sort of the middle 80s is uh, a kind of a succession of lackluster, soulless golf courses, if you will, be beginning and with the Belfry, which has been played four or five times. Uh, the, the K Club in Ireland, Celtic Manor in Wales, uh, even Valderrama in Spain, you, you could argue, is more of that elk than of the kind we play in America. Uh, the Monarchs course, as unscottish as Scottish golf courses you might ever find. And the uh, Le Club National in uh, France, uh, 
four years ago. And, and I don't really know Marco Simone where they're going to have it in Italy, but my sense is it's not too much different from those. Kind of big, uh, modern bulldozed uh, golf courses, which then ironically, because the European side is typically a bit shorter and maybe a little straighter than the American team, they take these big wide open courses and narrow down the fairways and make them uh, kind of not meant what they were meant to be and unnatural. And it has, has worked. We haven't, I don't know what the statistic is, but we haven't won over in Europe in decades. 93. Uh, yeah, okay. So 40 years. And conversely, um, when I'm, we go to these cozy uh, courses in America, these Parkland layouts designed in the golden age, and I, I think uh, typically we then lengthen the hell out of them, widen the fairways to accommodate our long uh, spray hitting uh, American pros and change the nature of those courses as well. I don't know that Jeff made a big deal out of that, but, but it occurred to me that uh, we do do that. So um it, it, it sort of uh, it gave him fodder to take a few shots at uh, more at the uh, PGA, the European uh, Tour, and and what they've been doing. You can just look at the list of the places that they played. You know, comparing the United States to um, the European hosts, uh, past few U.S. hosts: Whistling Straits, Hazeltine, Medina, Valhalla. Oakland Hills and the Country Club and Oak Hill. So you've, you've got some really high profile courses there. Um, adverse of that, Europe, um, you know, not counting this year, Leg Off National, Glen Eagles, Celtic Manor, K Club, the Belfry, um, and then Valderrama, as you mentioned. So um, stacking those two, it seems like doesn't really seem like a fair fight. Um, and like you said, the where Europe you know, tailors their courses to fit the the shorter and the straighter hitter. Um, you've seen the U.S. kind of broaden things. And uh, I guess that's all about, you know, part of being the host country, right? You, you can kind of tailor it towards your talent in a way. Well, it's interesting. Of all those Ryder Cup courses, there aren't, they really aren't on the must-see of any traveling golfer. I mean, and if you go to Scotland, you don't, even if you go to Glen Eagles, that the Monarchs course is the third one you're going to play. Uh, Celtic Manor is on nobody's list in 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 Wales. The K Club is on nobody's list in Ireland. So it's uh, and the Belfry certainly is on nobody's list going to England. So it's 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 part of what I was talking about with the the book I'm doing. It's the European version of the money grab over there. So other than Italy and. Marco Samoan Golf and Country Club, uh, the only other European venue that's been decided in the near future is 27. So you go to Beth Page in 2025, then 27 Adair Manor, uh, which there's a lot of good to say about that place. Well manicured, certainly, and uh, mm -hmm. a fine, fine golf course. Um, but outside of that, there hasn't been anything announced. Versus the U.S. side, we've got... Uh, Beth Page, Hazeltine, Olympic Club, and Congressional are all on the schedule. So there's holes in 2031 and 2035 uh, in Europe. And if Jeff had his way, and George, I don't know if you would agree, I think his choice for the next club that should be dubbed host is? 
the old course, the old course at St. Andrews. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think we talked about that, Jeff and I also. And he didn't need much encouragement. I don't even think I gave him any. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's the ultimate match play course. It's uh, it, it has for the pros under certain wind conditions. Well, let me put it this way. Every par four on the old course has been driven. And I can see people at their homes listeners saying, what, even the 17th? Yes, even the 17th has been driven. If you get a, a huge following wind there and belt it over the hotel, it can bounce onto the front of that green. And it has not more than once. Hell, when I lived there, I drove four or five of the par fours, albeit from different tees. But the point is, it's hard ground. It's uh, full of bounces and humps. And and as Jeff said, I, I forget what he called the stretch of holes between seven and 12, the uh, match play dreamy stretch. <clears throat> You've got um, seven, eight, eight, and, and eleven are par threes, and seven, nine, ten, and twelve are all really drivable. If you if you got to be sort of stupid to try to do it on seven, but the others are all drivable with irons or certainly uh, fairway woods to these guys on a windless day. They can drive all of them. And what could be more thrilling than watching them try to do that in in a match? Well, you can get me going on the old, old course. I won't uh, go much further, but it would just be super to see that happen. Is it ever going to happen? Well, you never say never. I never th thought there would be a, a tour event at the old course, and they've had the Dunhill Cup now there for 20 or 30 years. So, Well, you know. George, uh, if I if I may, um, I a year ago I wrote that St. Andrew's old course was the ultimate match play venue. I was about and... to segue to it. Yep. And and how you know it's criminal that there has never been a Ryder Cup contested on the old course um, for that reason. But it leads me to the general point that as Europe has gone to these resort courses that are overshaped, just big box courses, um, because you need the infrastructure and gallery support and and, and the rest of it. Um, but in the end, it's an exhibition match that you need to raise money and, um, you know, and those venues work, even if they're not ideal as match play venue, golf courses and so forth. But the argument I make in the U.S. is <laughs> exactly the opposite with the same conclusion. The PGA of America likes to take their Ryder Cup uh, to traditional courses. Now, Whistling Straits is more of the modern variety, and it did make for some wonderful drama. But Bethpage Black, Oak Hill, uh, Congressional to an extent, and, and some of these others um, are, are basically U.S. Open stroke play kinds of golf courses. They don't impress me as sufficient match play venues, even though we're all excited by the nature of the competition. But what I argued in my piece about match play and what makes a great match play course, if there is such a thing, is that you have decisions to make. You have to think on every tee ball and every shot. So as a, for instance, at the old course, there might be some stupid decisions that one makes if we're playing stroke play. But there's really no such thing as a stupid decision in match play. It's all situational. 
Right. So yeah. that that's what I wish for a little bit more, say, imagination in choosing our U.S. Ryder Cup venues, because some of the golf courses, you know, we cherish. They are golden age classics. But for strictly match play purposes, where you want to get inside the other guy's head and see what they're thinking and see what they're made of, um, that's what it was. When four or five Ryder Cups at the Belfry, there was literally one golf hole that had you do that, which was the par four tenth. Right. If you had the stones to pull out your driver and try to drive it on the green over the pond at a par four. And usually right. it was Sebi that wound up making the decision to do it. Right. But um, that that's all I'd like to see. And I, and I think Jeff's, you know, uh, made fair points in that. But, yep, I, I wish there were a little bit more match play magic in our U.S. Ryder Cup courses as well. That's a good point. Yeah, I mean, it's so much. Uh, it is. Everybody hits it to the same point in the fairway, and then they all take a shot at it with a niner. And whoever comes closer has a better shot. Yeah. All good points. And looking back at your match play article last year, Joe, you had Ohoopy Match Club, Austin Country Club, and Bandon Dunes as your your three more choices outside of the old course. So how about a Ryder Cup at one of those places? Or even even a TPC Sawgrass Ryder Cup? I mean, I feel like that would produce some pretty good drama as well. For sure. Oh, yeah. Last four holes there, perfect match play holes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But we'll get a chance to see the old course in match play in a couple of weeks in Walker Cup. Uh, lastly, we'll talk about my piece. Uh, and it's a little bit different uh, because I, I wrote about golf's nightlife scene. And, and I don't know if you guys have had the chance. I'm, I'm sure you've both been to a Top Golf before. Um, but uh, ever since that opened in 2000 and expanded to the U.S., it, it began in the U.K. and came to the U.S. in 2005. Since then, we've seen, according to studies, off-course go- off golf participation surpass on-course participation for the first time ever last year. Uh, a lot of people are finding new avenues into the game, and a lot of these places are available to play golf after the sun goes down, so you're not constricted by the sunlight uh, in the daytime, just playing golf on a a regular course. Um, The way I'm breaking this column down is by giving you a presentation of the different options that you have. So you have the the practice side of things. So the top golf adjacent type places uh, and competitors, drive shack, big shots or two that are very popular in the States. Uh, One called launch pad golf began in Canada and has gained some footing. Um, there's also now hundreds of locations, I think, that use a top tracer range. So essentially, they've converted their driving range into a top golf of sorts. St. Andrews is actually one of the places that have done this and experienced a lot of success with it. Um, and I played at the one at Palmetto Dunes down in South Carolina. Um, it effectively, like I said, turns your driving range into a top golf. You have the screen, you, you play with your own bucket of balls, but they're tracked. And you're you can play games, you can simulate rounds on courses, things of that nature. So there are practice area or practice venues. Uh, I also talk about venues where you can play. It's kind of realistic uh, in terms of being closer to a real round of golf uh, under the lights. Many of these places are par three courses. 
Uh, George, I know you're familiar with Three's Greenville. You wrote a piece on that for digital. Um, and places like Cloud9 at Angel Park in Las Vegas. Uh, the Swing at PGA Frisco, the new PGA of America headquarters in Frisco, Texas, uh, installed a short course you can play under the lights as part of their $500 million facilities there. Um, all the way out to Dubai, where there's a, a course called the Faldo course, Nick Faldo, where um, I think there is a European tour or ladies tour event that, that plays a night tournament there. Um, it's kind of interesting. Uh, there's also souped up putt-putt courses from adults, only options like puttery, uh, which is invested uh, from in the likes of Rory McIlroy to Tiger Woods Venture and Pop Stroke. Uh, so these are not your average mini golf courses. Uh, there's more strategy at play. There are bartenders coming out to you as you're you're heading, teeing off on a hole of mini golf. Uh, and they're more so built around F and B. These are these are entertainment venues, after all, that have incorporated a style of golf. Uh, then you can pretend you can go and tee it up in a simulator facility and play the old course, play TPC Sawgrass uh, on a big screen at places like Five Iron Golf, uh, X Golf, uh, and others similar to that. So, in conclusion, I don't think this is a place that's a, uh, a fad that's going anywhere. Uh, in fact, it's growing and, and Las Vegas is adding gargantuan venues, a 40 square, 40,000 square foot adults only mini golf venue that has five courses is coming to Vegas. Uh, there's also a hundred thousand square foot golf venue called Atomic Golf with four stories of hitting bays. I think the largest top golf I've seen has three. So here's a, a four story uh, version of that type of venue coming uh, for $75 million there on the strip. Uh, and then it's kind of branched out too. There's there's a top golf of everything, it seems like. Uh, there's a place called Jump Shot where you, uh, it's the top golf of basketball, uh, home run dugouts, the top, top golf of baseball and chicken and pickle uh, for pickleball enthusiasts. Uh, so bar and grill and pickleball if you like that. Just because the sun's down doesn't mean that you have to put the clubs down, George. Hmm. You know, I'd, I'd have a question. I think it's it's fascinating that there are now more people playing this brand of golf than the real thing. And I guess the question is, uh, will there be a conversion? Is this going to bring uh, more people to pl play golf? Or is this going to be the permanent competitor and uh, reduce uh, the golf's numbers? I mean, um, I think the the, the next generation of golfers is maybe not going to have the uh, the the money, the certainly the time, uh, or the inclination. Uh, their mindset isn't country club or even golf club, um, and uh, you know I wonder whether this is. I think a lot of people in the game of golf see it as the uh, as a great uh, boon to the game, but I think. It, it may be more the competitor. I don't know how you guys feel, but it's an interesting uh, situation building. I think that off course number is a combination of people who, you know, like us play golf and also go to a top golf, go to one of these venues, um, as well as people who just visit those as a one-time thing. Maybe they just want to 
play putt-putt, if you will, in a different environment. Um, but, but one thing I would say, we were talking earlier, it has uh, two of the sort of eternal attractions of the game we were talking about, camaraderie and beer. <laughs> it doesn't have the fresh air and exercise, but it has those other two uh, going for it. So it's, uh, you know, and, and the interesting thing is there were simulators where you could go and go into somebody's garage and hit it at a screen and play a golf course. When I was in high school, if you can believe that, back in the late 1960s, they had these things and they had, you know, kind of synthetic putting greens in front of the screen. You couldn't hit more than like a 20 or 30 foot putt, but and it's become a lot more sophisticated, obviously. But they, these things were around and they were like they were companies trying to start competition to bowling alleys in those days. And they never really got off the ground. It was another 30 years before they started to catch on again. Joe, you've been in any places like that out in Arizona? Well, I mean, they've often, you know, several have opened just within the last year, including uh, Tiger Woods Pop Stroke um, on the west side of town. They're uh, they're building another one uh, near Scottsdale. Uh, we have a Top Golf, and I've been to Top Golf in three different cities now. And I mean, you know, I was struck just the way George was. I wrote, "Wow." Um, when I saw that you said the number of Americans participating in these off-course forms of golf has actually surpassed the on-course game. I, too, wondered, is are, are those off-course golf activities acting as any sort of gateway? You know, has anybody come up with statistics to say X number of golfers entered actually playing the real game because of their activities in these other areas. I can see how it would happen, and yet I can also see the fun factor. The fun factor, including time spent, uh, which is a lot less, and uh, is so much part of the appeal to these other places. So, you know, I played a little golf at par three courses under the lights. Um, you know, covering a golf tournament in Tulsa, it's not much fun tromping around in June or August uh, at Southern Hills. But at night, it's a little easier. Um, and we play golf under the lights there at several different places. But, you know, I'm wondering too, Al, because I really appreciate you packaging this, putting this together to say there are so many entities doing these sorts of things now. Um, what, you're much more of an expert. What do you see as particularly exciting and growing and pay attention to this because you've done it and it's, hey, this is really pretty fun. Well, yeah, I got the chance to experience uh, one of the simulator places. I, I went to an X-Golf and it, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking I've hit on a golf simulator before. How is this going to be any different than what I've already experienced? And yeah, you know, I think the big thing with an experience like that is how realistic is it really? Um, you're hitting golf onto a screen. I've felt in the past that it's, and this is not how my shot actually would have reacted had I been playing on the, the green grass and out in the elements. But, you know, I was, I was struck by how accurate the, the distances were. They had a feature where it auto tees up the ball for you when it's your turn. The, the, if you're playing in a match with multiple people, 
uh, you can set your customizations. So um, I want the T at you know, 50% of its height, but the next guy wants it at 65% of its height. Um, it will automatically adjust based on whose turn it is uh, on the T and set the ball up for you. So uh, kind of a unique feature that I thought um, expedited things and and Let me ask you a question. If if you hit a shot against the ball against the screen, and when you stri strike the ball, it feels like a push fade. Do you see a push fade? On this, yes, I did. Um, the The level of technology now, I think, in some of these places is um, extremely high. And I, I and felt you see it to the, to the degree you feel it, not just like a random eh, it goes off to the right, but a pretty you accurate. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, when you get in a bunker, you get in the rough. That's where it gets a little tricky for me. Uh, they adjust and say, you know, hey, it's because you're in you have this line in the rough. It's going to be 80 percent of what your normal shot uh, distance would be uh, travel. So um, there's no way to really yeah. accurately um, give you that experience on one of these things. But but they've factored in certain things and, and there's an, an algorithm. There's a rhyme and a reason for how your shot uh, actually ends up once you've hit it. The putting is pretty, pretty challenging, I think. Um, you can't really account for reading slopes and things of that nature. It's If you've played the Tiger Woods video game, then you're able to see the, the grids and how those work on a screen and how a putt's supposed to break. But you're not looking at it, you know, you're not, you're not really reading the putt like you would on a, a normal putting surface. So it's about as good as it can be. I don't know how, how much better what the next evolution of that is. I've seen putting mats out there that adjust for slope at the PGA show, for instance, there's always some sort of techie new putting green concept and maybe that works its way in. You've got the TGL, the golf league coming up that all these pros have invested in and it's, uh, virtual golf, um, Tiger and Rory and Ricky Fowler, all those guys are involved in that. So that will be exciting to see how people engage. When does that start? That. You know, I don't know exactly. I'd have to look that up. I don't know if it's this year or next year or what, but I know that's coming down the pipe. So that will only lends itself to more people to want to participate in this kind of golf, I think. And for what it's worth, you know, I read another stat from National Golf Foundation. Uh, overall golf participation in the U.S. surpassed 40 million Americans for the first time in 2022. So that's on and off course. Um, the total has increased 40% in the past 10 years, driven primarily by off-course gains. In recent years, on-course participation has been stable and actually seen a slight upturn. It looks like since 2017, it's been steadily increasing in terms of on-course participation. So you got COVID in there, I'm sure helps a lot and with people picking up the game, but uh, maybe there is something to some of these places converting people from interest in golf to actually playing on course. Two things strike me, Al. Uh, one is I think the evolution, as you said, what more can they do with these simulators? And I'm thinking, well, maybe bring in some of the other senses so that uh, at some point they can simulate uh, you're playing in the rain and you've got to switch to uh, grips that are having 
a little bit of trouble holding. You can actually hear the raindrops on the le the tree leaves, uh, things like that. Uh, of course, you know, uh, other things that real golfers have to experience, like the siren going off on the street next to the hole you're playing right in your backswing and uh, little, little things like that. But the other observation I had in, in all candor is um, I'm not as familiar with so many of these different options for indoor or off course golf, so to speak, that you've outlined beautifully. Uh, but what it does do is it's helping to change the perception that those of us who grew up with golf, there was a little bit of an elitist tag to golf and that it you needed money and that it was really only for people of means and time and this and that. We all know that wasn't quite true, but there was a perception out there. And with all of these other options, opportunities to get involved, every single per young person thinks of them as fun. We're going to do this for fun, and it involves golf. And I think that's helping to change the perception overall that golf isn't just a slow, boring game for wealthy people. Golf is fun. All forms of golf are fun. And if that's an opportunity that we can pursue, it's worth doing because we're going to have a good time. Yeah, it's, it's sort of interesting. What what defines golf? Is, is it striking a ball and watching where where it ends up? Well, these indoor versions do that. Do you ha have to walk or ride after it? And and hit it again? Or can you be a golfer in your garage? <laughs> Is it as simple as just ball and club, you know? Yeah. Or not. I mean, now there's virtual reality golf, and you can, you can kind of go on with that, where you're not actually hitting a ball. Is that golf even? So, yeah, remains to be seen. But the another interesting part of the, the conversations I've had with people in the industry, a lot of them see themselves as, F&B, they're entertainment venues that happen to have golf in them. So you could go to a Top Golf, not touch a club, and still have a great time eating dinner. There's TV screens everywhere. You can just watch a watch a ball game and watch someone You're else. You're in camaraderie with clubs and balls. It's just a, a place to gather. It's a social, social gathering uh, spot with some golf mixed in. So anyways, we'll talk about that and more in the fall 2023 issue of Lynx. If you haven't subscribed, go to lynxmagazine.com and they, there are subscriptions options there for you uh, and where you can get yourself a copy, digital or hard copy, uh, to read and learn more. We've got some exciting ideas for 2024 as well that I'm sure we'll cover in an episode in the future, but for now... We appreciate both of your time, Joe and, and George. I uh, hope to see you guys again soon. Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye.